Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to Aerospace Nation. Today, we're really pleased to welcome two of the most important leaders in both the Air Force and the Space Force, the programmers for each. Lieutenant General Rick Moore is Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs at Headquarters Air Force. He's the key staff officer leading the development of the Air Force's Program Objective Memorandum and resource allocation plans. Lieutenant General Phil Garant is the Space Force's Deputy Chief of Space Operations for Strategy, Plans, Programs, and Requirements. And from that title, you can see that he's a critical leader in determining the future vector of the Space Force. Now, with the re recent release of the FY24 budget, this is a perfect time for conversation with these two key leaders. So with that, uh, to kick off today, first I'd like to thank both of you for being here uh, and then offer you each an opportunity to, to chat about your particular perspectives with respect to resources and where we're going in the future. So Rick, over to you first. Yeah, thanks Dave, I really appreciate it. And, and thanks for the opportunity to describe what we've done in our budget. And uh, what I'd like to start with is, is the notion that there's no such thing as a perfect budget. No company has unlimited money. And certainly in the public sector, this is, this is just kind of the way things are. However, the Air Force's 24 budget, I think, represents uh, a great leap forward. It builds very well on uh, the 23 cycle. Uh, and really, one of the, the things I think that everybody will see very clearly is that there was a fundamental guiding principle in the way we built the 24 budget, and that is the operational imperatives. Uh, the Air Force's seven operational imperatives uh, were designed to identify and fill key capability gaps in our ability to confront and, if necessary, defeat Chinese aggression. So it's easy to see what is a part of the Air Force. What's more challenging is to see what's not, and that is the benefit that we've gained from the operational imperatives. And as, as you well know, and many of the folks that are watching this as well, you can't build a concept into the budget. You have to build into the budget a list of things that you can spend money on. You can spend more or less money, and you can spend it sooner or later in the budgeting horizon. But the fact of the matter is you can't program a strategy. What the operational imperatives have done is boil the strategy down to that list of items that is now a part of the 24 budget. And so uh, I think the, uh, the ability to see what's there is important, but as I mentioned, the ability to see what's not is so very important, and that's what we have in the 24 budget. You will also see that some of the things we've talked about over the last several budget cycles are now a part of the base budget. They're not a part of the unfunded priorities list. They're not a wish list. 72 fighters is a great example. We've said over the last several cycles that in order to both bring down the average age of our fleets and increase their capability, we need to procure 72 fighters a year. This year, for the first time since I've been in this business, there are 72 new fighters in the Air Force's budget. We're super excited about that, and there are a variety of other things uh, that go along with that. That's just one single example. So we're certainly excited about, about where we've landed, and um, we also... Uh, although there are still some divestitures, um, they go along with the procurements that, that we've just talked about. And those divestitures are so very important, not just, not just about dollars. We'll talk about this a little bit more later, but the people that are involved in legacy mission sets, they will now have a future and we can now transition them to high-end missions that, that matter in a fight against China. So uh, we really want to thank the department uh, for all of the assistance that they've given in, in building what we think is a, a really robust and, and well-thought-out budget. Uh, and we look forward to working, as we always do, with, uh, with our colleagues on the Hill uh, to get enacted and appropriated uh, bills 
that we can execute. Uh, it is important this year, like every year, that those bills come on time. Uh, I'll give just a single example. Although it is not a new start, there are a dozen new starts in the Air Force's budget that will be on hold in the event uh, that we are not able to get appropriations and, and authorization bills. Uh, but in a program like Sentinel, for example, the, uh, the profile changes dramatically. It goes from about $98 million in FY23 uh, to almost $900 million in FY24. That won't happen in the event that we don't get bills signed. If we have to have a continuing resolution, particularly a long-term continuing resolution, that program won't be able to execute those dollars and, and it then puts all of the rest of the, the program schedule at risk. So um, there is definitely an imperative in our mind to get the bills on time. Uh, I want to say thanks again to the Mitchell Institute for the opportunity to tell our story directly and we look forward to questions. Yeah, great. Appreciate that. Phil? Thanks, Dave, for having us. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be here and I'd like to thank Rick. He's been a great partner. Uh, he talked about the operational imperatives. It truly was a department endeavor to present this budget. Um, the first OI deals with space directly, but I would add that the other OIs are reliant on space. Uh, our budget focuses on today's threat and the emerging threats and the aggression uh, from the pacing challenge in China. Uh, we are delivering support to the joint force. We are defending U.S. interests and our allies' interests in space. And finally, we're del delivering warfighting capability, uh, enabling the blue kill chain, and when we have to, denying the adversary kill chains. Uh, a small comment on the continuing resolution. Rick's got it exactly right. We must have a timely appropriation. If you look back at the last 10 years, we've lost f four years of opportunity uh, from continued and delayed uh, resolutions. So it's important to, that we get an on-time appropriation. We look forward to working with our partners in Congress and appreciate the support from the Department of Defense and for platforms like the Mitchell Institute give us a chance to talk about it. So thank you. No, thanks very much, um, both of you, for those uh, insights. And <clears throat> I understand that Secretary has been very clear in uh, his concern that um, these bills get passed on time uh, because uh, if we end up with kicking the can down the road and like you so well articulated, um, <clears throat> some of the new starts, particularly like Sentinel, uh, get shoved off. I mean, that's doing nothing than aiding our adversaries. So um, excellent points. Um, let's jump in and dig a little bit deeper into some of the, the questions that I know our audience would be interested in, uh, in hearing about. Um, Rick, we've seen changes that are going to change or affect, I should say, the future of the Air Force for years to come. Many of the programs that have been in development are going to come into production, uh, systems like the B-21, the T-7, hopefully the Sentinel. Uh, but at the same time, we've got several new systems that we have in the mill, uh, uh, like uh, NGAD, CCAs, NGAS, ABMS. So could you talk a little bit and share with the audience uh, just how you went about balancing kind of near term, what's going to get into production versus what we need to invest in to develop those future programs? Yeah, sure. So um, first of all, there are a lot of new procurements that, that come in this uh, five-year budget horizon. We're really excited about that. There do, in all things, there has to be a balance, of course. And so... Um, one of the trades I think that is most prominent in this budget cycle, we seldom talk about a particular offset going towards a particular investment. Uh, but in this case, F-22 Block 20s, um, they, they absolutely have value in training. 
but they're not combat representative. They will never be a part of the combat force. Uh, they don't have the most modern communications. They don't shoot the most modern weapons. They don't have the most modern electronic warfare capabilities. Uh, they will not become combat representative aircraft. And so uh, we elected to maintain our position from 23 that it's time to move on from the Block 20, and that money went directly to NGAD. Uh, we, are, it, it, we are convinced, and it is crystal clear to us, that in order to get into the early to mid-30s, with a force that can win, we have to get to a six-gen fighter, and that's NGAD. And so uh, there's a lot of thought that it's too early to be walking away from fifth-gen aircraft, and the Block 20s certainly are, uh, but they are not the Block They are not the block 30, 35 aircraft. They're not the fifth-gen Air Force that we're going to carry into combat. And so uh, that's a, it, it was a little bit of a difficult choice, but a choice that we made nonetheless because we believe it's imperative to get to the future. Uh, there are also... Several things that you'll see that have a lot of research and development behind them with a question mark for whether or not they're going to go into procurement. Uh, the secretary actually uh, is fine with that, and he believes that if we don't do the research and development now while we have time on our side, when the time comes that we need to put things into procurement, there'll be nothing to procure because the research and development won't have been done yet. And so... Um, that's kind of the perspective that we have. We've got to get the development done for capabilities that are required to confront and, if necessary, defeat Chinese aggression. Uh, and that can only happen if we start now. Yeah, let me give you a uh, um, couple follow-ups. Um, if you look at the FIDEP, and, and you're very familiar with this, um, the Air Force ends up with a net loss of 1,000 airplanes over the next five years. How, how do we avoid a capacity uh, death spiral, if you will? Yeah, so, so I don't think it's a death spiral, and I think you really have to get to the eaches in order to be able to analyze this. If you look at um, what is in those divestitures, if you look at the fighter fleet as an example, uh, there are over 600 divestitures, but there are also procurements. And if you, if you accept that the A-10s are not a part of the, of the high-end fight, uh, and you accept that the F-15Cs are voting with their wings, right? We, we, of every 10 F-15Cs we put into the depot, only two of them come out. Last year, there were two F-15Cs at Kadena that were grounded and would never fly again, and two more that could only do one-time flights to the depot. Now there are three that are permanently grounded and four that are on a one-time flight to the depot. That fleet has voted with its wings. If you accept that they're not going to be a part of the China fight anyway, we actually have a net gain in procurement, a small one, only 12. Uh, but of the airplanes that are left that we're divesting in that portfolio and the ones we procure, we actually increase by 12 the number of aircraft that will be a part of the future fight. So I think there's a story here that isn't quite as um, uh, necessarily as negative as it's being portrayed. Okay, well, thanks for that. Um, uh, we we believe that uh, the Air Force does suffer a situation where it is being asked for more and more capability than it has resources to accomplish. So um, we're going to continue to advocate to see greater share of the DOD resources go to the Air Force. But that's one of the things that, that we, we exist for here at Mitchell. Um, let me ask you one more follow-on, and that's a one that I know that you've heard before, and that's if you had an extra dollar to spend, what would you spend it on? Yeah, so um, the the chief has published his unfunded priorities list. That is a, a, a statutory process that goes directly from the service chief to the Hill. And the number one thing on his unfunded priorities list is acceleration of the E-7. Uh, the, the first aircraft 
can only come as soon as it's coming. But once that happens and the production line is hot and we're starting to deliver aircraft, we can make them come in greater quantity after that. And that's the number one item on the Chief's unfunded priorities list. Yeah, oh, very good. Thanks for that. Um, Phil, let's turn to the Space Force. Um, your budget plans for increased uh, resiliency on orbit are pretty evident. Um, but there are a lot of folks out there that understand that that's what the uh, CSO's vision is. Could you give us a little bit of insight into progress on how you plan on doing that? Sure, Dave. The, the most important pivot is the resilient and survivable architecture. And I would say it's not a vision anymore. We're doing it. Congratulations to Dr. Tournier and the Space Development Agency launched Tranche Zero A on Sunday. There are 10 healthy satellites on orbit, the very beginning of our proliferated LEO architecture. Uh, Two of the satellites for missile warning, missile track payload demos, and then eight for the tracking layer, tend to launch 18 more in June. So it's it's not it it is real, uh, and the budget investments that were that we have reflect those priorities. Uh, about 2.3 billion dollars for a hybrid missile warning missile track architecture, about 2.6 billion for a space data transport uh, effort. Uh, over almost two billion in SATCOM, and then all of the fantastic work in our force design that enabled us to put together such a comprehensive budget, the Space Warfare and Analysis Center, recognizing the important work they do, a $100 million increase in their budget to build out capacity to do that analysis. No, that's great. Um, yeah, we were fortunate enough to have uh, Dr. Tornier as our lunch speaker yesterday at our uh, Mitchell Institute uh, uh, annual Space Power Forum, and uh, it, it was good to hear the uh, the, <clears throat> the things that we used to talk about a couple of years ago have now become reality. So uh, that's awesome. Um, Rick, back to you. The budget included some tough calls about the future of the tanker buy and whether we'd have a KCY competition and then the propulsion choice for the F-35. Those have both been issues that have been in the headlines. Um, what kind of calculus went into uh, deriving at the, the choices that you all made? Yeah, so this is a great question. The, the tanker calculus is based on the threat. So we have, we we know that KC-46 procurement ends in FY27 and the last deliveries are in FY29. We also know that the threat has changed dramatically and we need a tanker that has some different attributes than one can achieve from a commercial derivative aircraft. And so that program, which we're calling Next Generation Air Refueling System in gas, has been accelerated to the left and we'll pull it as far to the left as we can. In this year that we're in right now, in FY23, there's some pre-AOA work and there is money in the 24 budget to start an analysis of alternatives to see what that could look like. In the meantime, between the end of KC-46 procurement and the start of NGAS, there's a gap. And we have to continue procuring tankers. The youngest KC-135 we own was made in 1964. And so we can't take a break from procuring tankers. So in the meantime, we will continue KC-135 recapitalization. Uh, both the secretary and, and Mr. Hunter have said that that will likely look very much like a KC-46, specifically like a KC-46 Block 1. Um, and the, uh, the secretary has asked Mr. Hunter to make that decision as soon as possible. And I think by the summer, we'll see uh, clarity on that. But um, this is another fleet that 
although it's going to be around for a while, uh, it's showing its age. The 135s, although they don't have a lot of hours on the airframe compared to what the civilian airlines flew them to, uh, they've been sitting in the rain for 60 years. And so they've been very well sustained, uh, but they're starting to show their age. Propulsion. Uh, there were three things that needed to be done or could be done in the, in the propulsion area specifically for F-35s. So the first is we know there's a need for advanced power and cooling, and that's required to realize the full capabilities of Block 4. That doesn't just apply to the U.S. Air Force. It applies to all three of the U.S. variants as well as the partner nations and the FMS nations as well. Uh, next, they're, they're at the foundation of, of Advanced Engine Technology Program, AETP, was the need to develop some technology that could go forward into the 6th Gen fleet. And so that program, Next Gen um, Advanced Propulsion in GAP, uh, it was only funded for the beginning of the fight app, and so we knew we needed to provide some additional funding to carry that program forward. And then there was a discussion about uh, the ability to purchase an advanced engine for the F-35. So what you'll see is advanced power and cooling, not just for the three U.S. variants, but for partner nations and, and FMS nations as well. That's fully funded across the fight app. NGAP is fully funded to carry two vendors forward in a competitive environment to some point that the acquirers will decide later on. Once those two things were done, if you consider that AETP is a U.S. Air Force only program and it's very expensive, there's still another $6 billion of research and development that need to go into that before you can buy the first engine in about FY28 or 29, it just didn't fit. And so uh, this was a regret. We would like for it to have been in the budget, but the first two priorities we took care of and they're just wasn't enough left to handle a, a very expensive U.S. Air Force-only development program. Got it. No, I, I think that's uh, very helpful for the audience to understand uh, the complexity and the detail that goes into each one of these things. Sure. Um, that's why I made the comment right up front that these two folks are, are everyone's important, but there's a lot that goes into the portfolios that both of them have. So on that point, Phil, I mean, I'm sure there are complexities that went into and the difficult choices that had to be made in the Space Force budget. Could you elaborate a little bit on what some of those might have been? Yes, our, I'd say our biggest challenge was uh, this transition that we're making from our legacy systems, our legacy architectures, uh, to a, a more resilient, smaller, you know, Honorable Calvelli's push for, for smaller satellites being uh, replenished more frequently. Um, we have some programs underway, an example being NextGen Geo OPIR, where in that case we've uh, eliminated a third satellite. Uh, it went from three to two to help us put some of that money in towards other priorities. So the, it was a challenge to balance the legacy capabilities, the existing programs underway, yet get, let's get kick-started on the capabilities we know we need to get after the pacing challenge. Oh, very good. Here's one for both of you. Um, we are increasingly moving into an era where military missions won't just be conducted in one domain. Uh, I mean, the obvious example is uh, GMTI. You know, we'd like to get that um, shifted up to uh, uh, orbit someday, uh, but we're still going to see that capability provided by aircraft. Maybe not a dedicated aircraft, but there are lots of aircraft now that can do GMTI and with uh, uh, networking, share that information. Uh, but could you both speak to that kind of an issue and, and where we're looking at cross-domain issues? What are some of the considerations that to, to go into acquiring multi-domain systems like that. Sure, and GPI is getting a lot of attention. As, as you probably better than anyone know, the T is target, 
and targeting is a Title X warfighter mission. Uh, the Space Force intends to partner with the National Reconnaissance Office, primarily for uh, to leverage some of their existing work in economies of scale. Uh, Dr. Scalise from the NRO is in communication with Secretary Kendall and Honorable Calvelli on a co-development effort to make sure that uh, Space Force uh, and combat command interests are satisfied by that. Uh, the Space Force is writing the CDD for GMTI, space-based GMTI. We're writing the CONOPS and the CONEMS, and it's uh, General Saltzman's intent that the Space Force provides these capabilities to the combat commanders. The, the only thing I'd reinforce is targeting is a Title X mission. This is a responsibility of the services to provide, uh, and it is, it is not an intelligence mission. It's not a part of the intelligence community. It is true, pure warfighting. Oh, very good. Um, excellent point. Um, Rick, back to you. The defense strategy uh, talks a lot about how homeland defense is the number one priority. Uh, but unfortunately, for some of the reasons that you already elaborated on, resource allocation uh, is challenging in the kinds of budgets that we have today. Uh, this was all highlighted, by the way, the homeland defense piece with the recent uh, Chinese uh, spy balloon overflight of the continental United States. So there's an obvious need for modernization of our sensor and tracking capabilities. Does the Air Force have a plan to do that even when money's tight? So we, we do, and I think one of the things that we would envision uh, is shared awareness. Uh, and one of the fundamental tenets of our advanced battle management system, ABMS, uh, is cloud-based command and control. And that would allow everyone to see the same information, the same filtered information, decision quality information at the same time. And I think one of the things that you saw in General Van Herc's testimony was his concern about uh, the time he has to make decisions and the, the, the speed at which we can move. That is one of the fundamental premises of, of ABMS. And I think what we'll see is it's not just Homeland Defense where that matters. If you look at a high-end fight, especially across the distances of a place like the Pacific, you have to be able to move a lot of data and provide filtered decision quality information to decision makers at speed and scale. ABMS is the way we intend to do that. Uh, that's a great answer. And by the way, there's a, a segue here. I mean, you mentioned General Van Hurt. He has been passionate about his concern um, of filling the gaps, if you will, uh, with the potential of adversaries coming across the poles with uh, cruise missiles and the potential gap between detection and action. Um, I guess the same answer applies with respect to seeking filling holes in, in that concern of General Van Herx as well. It sure does. And, and, you know, I think gone are the days when the only thing that you would have available is a dedicated sensor. There are a wide variety of sensors, as you mentioned in the GMTI conversation. And what ABMS will do is combine all of those feeds and stitch them together, filter them and provide decision quality information at speed and scale. Great. Uh, Phil, yesterday I mentioned the uh, second annual uh, Space Power Forum. Uh, the Chief of Space Operations, General Saltzman, uh, reinforced one of his major tenets of his being space situational awareness. Can you talk a little bit about how the current budget invests in uh, uh, filling out, if you will, that uh, capa uh, capability and capacity requirement. Sure, and, and before I do that, I want to I want to amplify what Rick said about decision quality data at scale. Uh, ben General Ben Herc is worried about protecting the homeland. Uh, fixed ground-based radars, the adversary knows where they are and can maneuver around them. Uh, when we bring some of our sensors to space, 
absolute critical requirement is that timely fire control quality data right to the shooter. So we're working very closely with ABM, with the Air Force on RC2 as well to enable that. Uh, for SSA, it, it, the problem just keeps getting greater and greater and more complex. From 2021 to 2022, the number of objects that the Space Force tracks, the catalog in 2022 is 40, almost 48,000 objects, an increase of 16% from the previous year. Of those, over 7,000 active payloads, an increase of almost 16% just in active payloads alone. Uh, just another example, Starlink, SpaceX's commercial satellite communications network, intended to have 12,000 satellites on orbit when it's at FOC. That's almost 25% of what we currently catalog. So it's just going to keep growing. And that's only one company. Uh, there are other companies looking to put up other proliferated LEO constellations. Uh, so it's a really critical part of our uh, budget investment, uh, like deep space radar from the ground, ground-based optical uh, telescope systems, GBOS and DARK, uh, Silent Parker on orbit. Over $100 million investment in this budget towards space situational awareness. And the next step, space domain awareness, where we're not just tracking in custody, but characterizing norms of behavior, anticipated behavior. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, when you start talking about numbers of 16 to 20% annually, that's enormous. Um, and I'm sure there are organizations out there that are pondering and thinking about perhaps going up and collecting that stuff and getting rid of it. Uh, that's another piece of the equation that I think of. We're going to hear in the not too distant uh, uh, future. Um, let's come back to Earth for a second. Um, something that has really uh, uh, affected all of us, and we're watching closely, is the war in Ukraine. Uh, and it's reminded us that attrition matters, whether we're talking about people or we're talking about hardware. Um, and how that affects us, um, the Air Force has been challenged with a persistent fighter pilot shortfall now for a while, aged aircraft inventories, and insufficient uh, munitions. Rick, could you talk a little bit about what steps the Air Force has taken to deal with these issues? Absolutely. So this is why we have to get to NGAD. We have to be able to maintain air superiority. The reason the war in Ukraine is a war of attrition is because neither side has air superiority. And so this is one of the reasons that we felt that the Block 20 trade was worth making. Uh, we've got to get to uh, the ability, maybe not all times in all places, but at least for pulsed operations, to, to attain and maintain air superiority. And we don't want the kind of bloodbath that's going on in Ukraine right now. Uh, and so therefore, we have to get to the advanced capability that it takes to change the change the battlefield. Okay, Phil, with respect to how what's going on in Ukraine might affect uh, and pass on some lessons to the Space Force, it also provides an example of how commercial space companies are key in providing reliable communications and overhead ISR. I mean, my gosh, we've got commercial companies today that are providing essentially SIGINT uh, that you can get access to if you've got a credit card and uh, access to the internet. Um, how is the Space Force working with integrating commercial space capabilities uh, that we see evident in Ukraine into your future planning concepts? So General Saltzman's third line of effort is partner to win. Uh, that includes partnering with, with commercial companies and capabilities. They provide us access. They provide us diversity of, uh, of capability. Competitive pricing, it lets us prioritize military capabilities and guardians uh, on 
inherently military functions. Uh, it helps at the industrial base when we partner with them. Uh, the headquarters is currently working on a strategy and policy guidance on commercial integration and uh, how we'll work with different companies. And it's not one size fits all. Uh, some companies might have a different business model that uh, changes how we interact with them. Uh, so it will absolutely be an integral part of our future force design. No, that's great. Um, Rick, you mentioned the Air Force getting up to 72 fighters per year. Congratulations on that. That's a, a major milestone. Um, but that said, uh, 72 still falls short considering the numbers that old fighters that have to be replaced. We talked a little bit about that. Um, what's the Air Force thinking about in terms of dealing with the capacity challenges that we got coming down the road? Yeah, so... You know, as, as we've talked about multiple times, there's, there's a balance in all things. There's a balance between capability and capacity. And so we will bring on advanced capabilities at the max rate we can. The defense industrial base can only support so much procurement. And the ability right now to go beyond 72, uh, there, there are some challenges. You know, that it's great to think that COVID is over, but supply chain and workforce issues are not over at all. And so uh, we'll continue as we go into the 25 cycle to look at what we can do and uh, you also mentioned that there's a fighter pilot shortage. So at some point, at some point, you have to realize that it's not just aircraft procurement. It's also pilot production. It's weapon system sustainment. Uh, it's all of the things that go along with the flying hour program, all of that. Uh, and we will work as we go into 25, as we always do, to try and get the best balance we can to maximize the dollars that we have uh, and produce the most capability out of the capacity that we can, that we can field. Yeah, great. Uh, appreciate that uh, answer. It's just, I and I know, it, it, but again, both of you should be complimented for a really, really challenging problem that you have. Um, but I just want to make the point again that a lot of these trade-offs shouldn't be forced on the Air Force to make internal to their service. Because from a defense-wide perspective, if we're not going to see any great increase in the DOD top line, the department writ large has to start making some important decisions between the services on what yields greatest capability for the investments that we've been making. And that's one of the arguments that we've been, uh, been, been trying to make uh, for a while and it'll continue to do so to get the Department of the Air Force the resources that it needs. Um, we've talked before about the demands coming from the combatant commands. You know, and, and folks go, well, you Air Force guys keep it. Well, go ask the combatant commanders what they're asking for. Um, I digress. Um, Phil, it's great to see the $3.9 billion increase to the uh, Space Force budget. Um, but that still keeps the, the Space Force behind the Marine Corps in terms of total budget. Now, I'm not asking you to take on the Marine Corps. Um, I'll do that and question, you know, what's more important for the nation? Uh, space architecture uh, in the 21st century or the ability to conduct amphibious assault? Again, I'll take that one on. Uh, but could you elaborate a bit on what we can expect to see and when in terms of increased space budget? Sure, so the, the $4 billion increase represents a $30 billion budget uh, for 24, about 22 billion over the FIDA uh, focused in that resilient pivot that you've heard us talk about, the force design, SATCOM, missile warning, missile tracks, space data transport, and uh, as, as Rick mentioned at the top of the hour, 
the, the operational imperatives uh, and, and enabling those capabilities. Uh, going forward, you're going to see continued funding in those areas. Uh, another really big focus area, General Saltzman's first line of effort is field uh, ready, resilient, combat credible forces. Uh, in order to do that, we need an operational test and training infrastructure so that we can uh, build up our next generation of guardians who can uh, fight against a, a thinking adversary and be ready for that modern fight. Uh, you'll see continued force design emphasis on satellite communications, electronic warfare, and uh, we've talked a little bit about moving target indicators already. So uh, I, I think those are tremendous uh, requirement areas. Uh, you mentioned the Quebec commanders, uh, the other services. Uh, General Saltzman is the force design architect for space as well as the joint space requirements integrator. Uh, so we work very closely with the combatant commands and the joint forces to uh, integrate their needs and make sure that uh, our budget reflects the best balanced priorities uh, between the service and the other services. Okay, very good. Um, I know that we've got a lot of people out there in the audience um, and who've got questions on their mind. So what I'd like to do is shift now to the audience Q&A and provide them plenty of time uh, to get their, uh, their, their thoughts in. So those of you in the audience, I think all of you are, are familiar with the drill, but uh, please raise your hand. And when I call on you, announce who you are, and then go ahead and state your question. So we'll get started right now. Um, and we'll take the first question from uh, Steve Lucy. Steve, over to you. Hi, um, thanks for doing this. Uh, Zero more, you mentioned at the beginning um, the, the fact that for the first time in a long time, the budget calls for 72 fighters, uh, which the Air Force has uh, said is necessary for a while. Do, do you expect this will be a kind of trend going forward and future budget requests or is it possible that this might be a one-time thing do you think that this that the air force will be able to regularly request 72 fighters um in future years as well yeah steve thanks for the question and uh it's uh it's great to talk to you again so i i certainly think you'll see that again it's not a one-time thing i certainly think you'll see it again uh, part of what's important here is the composition of that 72 aircraft. It includes both F-35s and F-15EXs. So uh, as, we be, as we reach what we believe is a, a sustainable fleet size and, and what we need in the F-15EX, we'll have to see what capacity is available uh, in the F-35 world or, or whatever else it, it may be that we look at. But I don't think it's a one-time thing, but I do think that right now it's predicated on the fact that we have two hot fighter production lines. Uh, and that won't be the case, uh, certainly, by the middle or end of the fight, Ed. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, let's shift over to Scott Kuhn. Scott? Yes, sir. Uh, hopefully everybody can hear me. Yeah, we got you. How do we measure, pro how do we measure progress as we, we look to a contested fight we hear about intel briefs, and there's always dates associated with those. But when we're talking about contested logistics, that is a very difficult problem. How are we as a, as a you know, really a, beyond just the Air Force, a, an enterprise, measuring our uh, ability to get to a point where we're going to be able to take it to China if necessary from a, from a logistical perspective? 
Yeah, Scott, of course, you've, you've hit on one of the most challenging parts of this problem. And uh, the, the way you do that is, uh, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's great to be able to see what's in the service budgets, but you have to be able to see what's not. And in order to do that, you have to have some kind of construct that lets you organize the capabilities that you think you need. Some use mission engineering threads, some use operational imperatives. But the fact of the matter is you have to be able to determine what capabilities you believe you need and then which ones you have and that then tells you which ones you don't. And in order to figure out what is most effective or not, we have uh, a variety of methods for that. We have modeling and simulation and we have wargaming. Uh, we have tabletop exercises. All of those need to come together to help us understand what the, what the most important priorities are for the budget uh, in order to close the gaps in our ability to confront Chinese aggression and, if necessary, to, to defeat. So it, it is a really hard problem set. And it, as you mentioned, it is not a US Air Force problem set. It is a joint force problem set. And I think what you'll see, I won't speak too much to the other services budgets, but I think you'll see in all of the other services budgets a recognition that contested logistics is one of the more challenging parts of this um, and, and the knowledge that we have to get after it if we're going to be able to sustain operations over any reasonable length of time at all. And I'll, I'll add from a space perspective, the proponents of our missions are deployed in place. Uh, so while not all logistics, but sustainment is a pretty important part of logistics. Uh, and sustainment has a direct correlation to readiness. So it's a big focus area for General Saltzman to get after system sustainment as it enables uh, combat ready forces. Okay, very good. Uh, Jens Hinge. Um, good morning, gentlemen. Um, it was reported uh, recently that the F-35 uh, fleet um, is uh, only 50% mission ready, uh, and our target is a mere 65% uh, target for mission readiness. Um, why such low numbers in reality, and why such a low target? I'm from the uh, business side of things, and uh, I've never heard of anything uh, with a 65% mission readiness. Yeah, Jens, thank you for your question. So um, the, uh, the Joint Program Office, uh, under the leadership of Lieutenant General Schmidt, uh, has declared a, um, a war on sustainment, and, and General Schmidt is keenly focused on what it takes to increase the readiness of the F-35 fleet, not just for the, for the Air Force or for the three U.S. variants, but also for the partner nations and for the FMS nations, too. So uh, there is an acknowledgment that all of the hardware in the world, if it doesn't fly, isn't actually combat capacity. Uh, and, and General Schmidt's working that really hard. We are doing the same in the Air Force. And, and uh, I think what you've seen over the last couple of years is a dramatic increase in the availability due to uh, engine power modules. Um, there, there is progress being made here. Um, and I, I, I would like for the numbers to be higher because it might re result in a lower requirement. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I think what's more important is that we're honest about what it takes to operate advanced weapon systems and what we can expect of them uh, and then drive the folks that are involved in that enterprise to produce at the level that we think is reasonable. And certainly, uh, certainly General Schmidt is on this and, and speaks about it routinely. Okay, Teresa Hitchens. Hi there. Um, this is a, a question for Lieutenant General Grant. Um, yesterday, General Miller of Space Command 
um, said that one of his greatest concerns uh, with regard to space domain awareness is the is his lack of capability to keep custody of objects in space. And I wondered if you could point to what efforts in the FY24 budget are the biggest priority for allowing him to meet that need. Can you talk a little bit about what is happening with uh, the investment in space situational awareness uh, for that goal? Thanks. Sure. Um, I'll. I'll uh amplify my previous comment uh, uh, and expand. Uh, DARK is a program that we're looking to work with our international partners on to put uh, deep space radars uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, same thing with the ground-based optical telescopes, again, working with our international partners. Uh, to really get after the access. Uh, one of my responsibilities wearing my five hat is uh, international partnerships. And many of our strategic engagements with, with uh, emerging spacefaring nations, uh, they, they like to know how they can help. And again, it gets back to access parts of the world where maybe we don't have a capability where we can invest. Um, and then the third part on orbit, uh, partnering with, with other agencies, for example, again, with Silent Barker. Uh, so the 24 budget does show a, a considerable investment in all the orbital regimes in all parts of the globe to get after uh, the concern that Rock has uh, with, with custody in all of his uh, areas of interest. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you. Okay, let's shift to Frank Wolf. Frank? Oh, hi there. Um, uh, General Moore, uh, just had a, a, a question on um, the uh, Mr. Hunter's, uh, <clears throat> this, I guess, this summer, uh, again, looking at the uh, the gap filler between um, KC-46 uh, and NGAS, um, and it will look something like KC-46 Block 1. Is there any alternative beyond that, beyond KC-46, that would, when, when there is some decision this, this summer, or is it just KC-46 is what you're going to go with? I mean, I, I don't know if there's another alternative beyond that as the gap filler there. So there, there is some decision space here for Mr. Hunter. Uh, there, there are other entrants into uh, into the tanker uh, enterprise. Uh, it, this, in this case, it's about the number of aircraft that we think will fit in that gap. And and the the premise of this conversation is it's about seventy five airplanes, and the time when we need them. They need to start procurement in twenty seven for deliveries. Uh, in 29 to come in right on top of the KC-46 program that we have on contract now. So um, that that certainly that's not a decision that we make in the eight. That's a that's a decision reserved for the service acquisition executive. Uh, and and I think the timeline for that, as I mentioned before, is is this summer. It is imperative that we continue to buy tankers. I'll reiterate that from my from my previous comments. The youngest KC-135 we own was made in 1964. So we've got to continue buying tankers. Right. Um, if, if I may, just a quick follow. Just on, on F-35, there's been a lot of talk about spare parts and issues and et cetera. Uh, and they're, they're coming up with this new measure called gross issue effectiveness, which is uh, could be in this performance-based logistics contract, measuring the spare parts delivery on time. Do you have any sort of sense or uh, on statistics for other, other uh, aircraft in terms of what would be a, a GIE or gross issue effectiveness uh, percentage for, for the other aircraft you had in terms of um, uh, delivery of spare parts on time? Obviously, with F-35, it's different because Lockheed Martin's uh, involvement there. But I, I wondered if you had any kind of 
estimates or figures on that. And so I was wondering how that compared. Yeah, so I, I don't have those figures on the on the tip of my tongue, but I, I can tell you that when it comes to spares, this is one of the most pronounced impacts that we're seeing as we continue to work for work through um, workforce and supply chain issues. Uh, I'll, I'll give you just one example. When we finished the the submission of our budget to, to Department of Defense last July, we funded 1.1 million flying hours. In order to maintain that same 1.1 million flying hours, when we when we closed out the president's budget in February to submit it uh, to Office of Management and Budget. The cost of the flying hour program had grown by 10%. Almost all of that was in spare parts. So in nine months, the cost of the flying hour program grew by 10%. This will be one of the bigger challenges we face in the 25 cycle as we start into that is how do we keep up with the large accounts, the flying hour, flying hour account is about $8 billion a year. How do we keep up with these large accounts as they continue to grow faster than inflation? This, this is a challenge for us. Uh, and it'll be one of the biggest ones we face in the 25 cycle. Right, and that's across different aircraft in terms of that, that, that spare parts 10% increase, or is it predominantly one? No, it's across it's across the entire fleet. And of course, that impacts the weapon system sustainment account as well, which is even larger than the flying hour account. The weapon system sustainment account is about $18 billion a year. So you can see that these large accounts, as they as they outpace inflation, that's a problem for us. We'll have to work through it. Thank you. All right, let's turn to uh, John Turpak. John? Uh, General Moore, I wonder if you could give us some, uh, some context on the F-22s. Uh, you said a lot of money was put into the NGAD from the F-22, from the savings you would hope to reap from retiring those aircraft. Can you give us a sense of how much went over there and how much, therefore, you'll, you'll have to make up if Congress doesn't allow you to do that? So the, the cost of the F-22 Block 20 Enterprise is about $485 million a year. So if we say round numbers, it's about $2.5 billion across the five-year budgeting horizon. And, and in, the, in the event that we are, again, restricted from divesting those aircraft, but again, the money is not appropriated to fly them, there'll be a half a billion dollars of something that won't get done. Perhaps it'll be NGAD, perhaps it'll be munitions, perhaps we'll stand down the F-22 fleet. But no matter what, there'll be a half a billion dollars worth of something that doesn't get done um, un unless the, the restriction comes with an accompanying appropriation. Okay, and can you give us a sense of if Congress uh, tells you, no, we want those airplanes brought up to combat capability, what would that cost? Yeah, so the cost is only one part of that. To bring the airplanes up to combat capability would be something around $3.5 billion dollars. The real challenge, two of them, first, it would take a decade to get that started. There's a lot of engineering work that that would take. Uh, and second, speaking of that engineering work, um, both the F-22 and the F-35 are Lockheed aircraft. Uh, Lockheed is not fully staffed for engineers. And so if we were to stand up an effort like this, it would be reasonable to expect they would have to pull some engineering talent off of F-35. Probably that means Block 4 uh, in order to get this accomplished. I don't think that's... That, that is a trade to us that doesn't make any sense at all uh, to, to upgrade aircraft a decade from now at great expense uh, while impacting the F-35 Block 4 at the same time. Uh, we, we just we don't think that that's, that that's a viable course of action. Thank you. Um, okay, Joe Garant, here's one for you um, from Bill Weatherington. Um, the weather satellite program, EWS, is desperately needed 
considering the DMSP satellites are on the verge of failure, is EWS on track in the budget, and could that program be accelerated with increased funding? It's an important program. I'm not sure that I could speak to any acceleration on the program. Uh, it, it does continue to get support. Okay. Um, here's one from Larry Stutzream. Uh, nuclear modernization is a house of cards if the program is delayed by continuing resolution. Uh, General Moore, could you talk in a bit more detail about the cascading effects and the overall plan if the budget isn't passed on time? Yeah, so um, the, the whole focus right now, uh, I presume you're talking about Sentinel. There are certainly other parts of nuclear modernization, including the, the B-21 program, um, the long-range uh, standoff weapon, LRSO, uh, as well as upgrades to nuclear command and control and communications. Uh, but if you look at Sentinel directly, uh, the, goal, the goal will be uh, to have as little impact on the warfighter timeline as possible. And that may mean that we need to move some content around in the near years so that we can maintain uh, the warfighter need date. And one of the things that, that is a real challenge here is uh, it, it, the amount of money that it takes to keep Minuteman 3 viable, uh, if the warfighter need date slips, it approaches ludicrous. The, the Minuteman 3 was fielded 50 years ago as a 10-year weapon system. Uh, and the amount of dollars that it takes is only one of the one of the biggest problems. What I've, I've been to Malmstrom and, and watched Airmen maintaining the Minuteman 3 weapon system. And what it takes to keep that weapon system operational is absolutely unreal. And so we've got to keep Sentinel's warfighter need date on track as best we can. And because of the change in profile this year, and this is not from 23 to 24, is not the only one of these big profile accelerations in Sentinel specifically, uh, an on-time budget is imperative. And, and all we do in the event that we don't get one is, is eat up the very, very little bit of margin that there is uh, with the potential of causing it to go negative and ceding decision space to our adversaries instead of maintaining it ourselves. Yeah, let me jump in here with just a comment. I think that's a magnificent answer and uh, part of our problem back to the macro level uh, inside the Air Force um, is uh, with, with this 24 budget, that's now the 31st year in a row that the United States Air Force has been funded less than the Navy or the Army. We deferred modernization on so many programs that the bills are becoming due today and so for the Congress, the nation, and the Department of Defense, if you want a healthy Air, Air Force, you need to pay for it. Um, and we need to get back to the position where um, we can project the strength in the capacity that's demanded by the combatant commanders. Um, uh, let's see. Let's see. Here's one for General Durant. This is an interesting one, maybe a bit down in the weeds. Uh, but uh, uh, Camilla Gunzinger asks, what challenges might exist from a budget procurement perspective when it comes to partnering with commercial companies since the first thing many companies would want if participating in a craft model is indemnification? Sure. So I mentioned earlier we are working on a headquarters strategy uh, and an implementation guidance in partnership with, uh, with Honorable Calvelli's team. Uh, Lieutenant General Mike Gutlein recently hosted a, a conference uh, here in Virginia on 
uh, a, a commercial augmentation construct, if you will. Uh, I kind of alluded to this earlier without saying indemnification. What we're finding in our research and our talks with various companies is not every company necessarily wants or needs indemnification. It's really driven by their business model and how big their uh, their constellation is and, and the services they provide. Are they selling you a picture? Are they selling you analysis? Uh, so what we're finding is not necessarily everyone needs indemnification. Uh, in the Space Force, of course, the most obvious example of indemnification is, is Spacelift, is launch, uh, because of the risk to the communities and the surrounding the, the, the launch facilities. Uh, so that would be a conversation with each of the different partners. Nothing we intend to do will constrict or constrain. Uh, and then, of course, it becomes a, a conversation of what can we afford and, and what capabilities are provided. So I would say indemnification is not off the table, but it's not necessarily a must-have either. No, I think that's a, it's a great answer. A little bit different than the craft model where you, it, it, um, it, it is very different. I think you explained it in, in a good way. It does depend upon what the business model is. Here's one from uh, uh, Bob uh, Hodgkiss, um, and it's one that's not necessarily in your sandboxes, if you will, but it's certainly related. The FY24 budget contains requests to buy a lot of stuff, aircraft, munitions, satellites, and so on and so forth. What is the department doing to prepare the acquisition workforce to be ready to execute the appropriated funds at speed? Similarly, how are the acquisition processes being accelerated both inside the department and in working with OSD? So, like, like I said, you, you're not the acquisition folks, but you certainly have uh, interest in that play. Yeah, let me take a, a run at the first part. And, and hi, Bob, good to, good to have your question. Um, Rick, Rick has talked a lot about, and, and I have as well, these operational imperatives. Uh, it, there's a lot of uh, emphasis inside the Pentagon, inside the, the Department of the Air Force, on not just identifying what those imperatives are, but laying and planning. Uh, all of the OI teams owe to uh, the secretary the implementation plans. So, so quite frankly, the acqu traditional acquisition organizations are doing things that they haven't been asked to do before. Uh, they are being expected to deliver some acquisition strategies. How would you organize? You know, how are you going to execute your funds? We, we don't even have appropriated funds yet, and we're already thinking about if the money, if we, the money's enacted, how we're going to execute it to go faster. Um, so it's very deliberate on the planning. To, to Bob's point, that when we do get that money, uh, we're not just then starting once we receive the money. And, and I forget the second part of the question. Um, well, I, can, I can speak a little bit to it. So, so I'll, I'll touch on the first part as well. Um, you know, certainly the size of the acquisition workforce is something that we've looked at for quite some time. And, you know, we tend to talk about the Hill like it's a single entity. It's not, but um, there are different perspectives from different groups of folks. But there is a perspective that is looking very carefully in this budget cycle at the size of the civilian workforce in the, in the military departments. And so the thought that we just add a bunch of people to the acquisition workforce, I'm not sure that that's a successful strategy. On the military side, recruiting is a challenge for all of the services and within the Air Force, all of the components. And so just adding military workforce may not get us home either. So 
uh, I think if there is something on the horizon that's very helpful, it's that both KC-10 and the JSTARS finished their divestiture in FY24. That frees up the people that are involved in the sustainment enterprise and in the acquisition enterprise behind them uh, to do other great work. So there is some relief coming as we get to the end of divestiture of legacy fleets. It doesn't help to divest a few airplanes. You have to actually get to the end of the fleet, and we're doing that in 24 with two important ones, the KC-10 uh, and the E-8s. I'll also say that there are some shock absorbers available for the acquisition community as things tend to move quickly like the operational imperatives. There's direct side authority to have the ability to use ANAS contractors. The size of the acquisition workforce is not the only variable. Uh, and then the final thing I'd say is I think what this will do is force some conversations in the acquisition workforce about which things they prioritize and about what it takes to, to maybe look towards um, a more modern business model that might include um, a digital workforce and, and not just digital products, but digital processes as well. So I, I don't know that this is a, a simple conversation, but I do think it's going to be had because the workload is absolutely coming. That's an awesome answer. Um, and like you sound you said, surprised. It's, well, <laughs> no, it's complimentary. I mean, you, you know, it's a it's an indicator of the fact that there's so much work that uh, all of our leadership now has to be versatile in addressing not just what used to be in a single lane, uh, which is a good thing. I mean, you know, you get to your levels, uh, you need to be able to understand across the entire enterprise, which is great. And there's recognition and, and proactive planning, uh, to, to Rick's point. Yeah. So, so we're not waiting yeah. But maybe in the past we would have. Yeah, well, great question. Okay. Now, here's a, another one that's a bit of a segue to what you mentioned in terms of closing out E8. Uh, it comes from uh, an E8 uh, expert, Alex uh, Wallace. And his question is, manpower is often tied to iron. How's the A8 navigating the transition of traditional airborne missions moving to other facilities that often have different maintenance and a support footprint. Yeah, so uh, with the E-8 in particular, um, there are, uh, you know, if you think about what's in the front of an E-8, it's pilots. We have lots of places where we need pilots. That's not a problem. And if you think about what's in the back of the E-8, uh, it's airborne battle managers. And air battle managers are in demand uh, across the Air Force, and we don't have enough 13 Bravos, air battle managers, to fill all of the spots that we would like to fill. There are lots of planning spots or planning billets in uh, air operations centers that, that call for air battle managers that are not filled. We absolutely have a place for them. We also, at Robbins in particular, as we've transitioned out of the aid, have brought in uh, a quartet of missions, we call it, um, and, and uh, the, the manpower that comes into Robbins, uh, some of it will stay because one of the things that's going to be there is Kingpin, and that is the the airborne control facility uh, for Central Command, and a lot of the folks that are in there are air battle managers. And so in this case, we got pretty lucky because we needed a home for Kingpin. We had some air battle managers at Robbins. It was kind of a natural, but um, we certainly are, are uh, in need of maintainers across the Air Force as well, and so the maintainers that were in the JSTARS Enterprise uh, will become a part of the Air Force Maintenance Enterprise just somewhere else. Okay, very good. Um, I see John Turpak has got his hand raised again. John, you want to ask the final question, please? Yes, thank you for General Moore. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, it seemed like it, over the last few years, uh, the investment in AMRAM was starting to wind down, presumably in anticipation of the JATAM, but there's a, a big surge in AMRAM funding this year. 
uh, was wondering if we should interpret that as uh, uh, you want to be complementary to the JATAM or are, uh, is JATAM delayed? So we don't see a delay in JATAM, um, and we want to get to JATAM as quickly as we possibly can. Um, you will also see, uh, along with uh, some AMRAM investment, uh, some facilitization money uh, that will help us get to JATAM faster. Uh, once we can start procuring it, we'll get to quantity as fast as we can. And I think in all of the munitions portfolio, this tends, this tends to be the, the number one issue uh, in testimony this year, or at least among the number one issues, and that is what's happened because so many weapons have gone to Ukraine, and what has it done to the services, and what are we going to do about it? And so any munitions line that's hot that is producing weapons right now, you see investment in that. It isn't just AMRAM. It's any place where we can buy munitions uh, because the reality is when we tried to surge to go into Ukraine, the surge capacity wasn't there, and industry is ramping up as quickly as they possibly can but as I've mentioned already, supply chain and workforce issues are very real. So any munitions line, at least advanced or, or uh, preferred munitions that was able to produce, uh, you see some level of investment into, into that weapon. Thank you. Okay, well, uh, thanks, John. And uh, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our uh, Aerospace Nation session. I really want to thank both of you for being here. You got a good workout um, from the audience and the, and, the, and the folks out there asking questions. And uh, if I may say so, you did an excellent job. And we wish you all the best in your endeavors. And to you and uh, all of our audience, we wish you a great aerospace power kind of day. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave.